Mom and dad says, Mom and dad says, those are powerful words, aren't they? If a little kid goes and tells his or her siblings, we are going to Disneyland, the older kids might say, oh, that's just the imaginative little kid over there making stuff up, creative little sister. But if she just adds that little tiny phrase, mom and dad says, then, oh, that changes everything, doesn't it? Because mom and dad say, that gets us to stop what we're doing because we're really going to Disneyland. We can rejoice. We get excited. We can thank our parents. We can enjoy this news together. You can just imagine maybe this has happened to you or maybe you want this to happen to yourself. Uh, the, the parents, after entrusting certain news to the messenger, they look out the window to see everybody rejoicing, and they rejoice too. And the one who brings the message, they get to rejoice, and hearing other people hear the news for the very first time. And then, of course, the ones who receive the message get to rejoice. But everybody just rejoices when people get to hear what mom and dad say. Since little sister came out with the good news on the authority of our makers... We, therefore, can trust that word. We can bank on that message. We can hope in that message. And we can trust in the message all because mom and dad says. Christians, did you know that we have been given the pleasure of delivering the most awesome news given to people? As summarized in the creed that we all stood up and confessed, the news that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And this message comes by the authority of the Lord Almighty Himself. By His design, we get the honor and privilege of delivering this message so that we can see people trust, rejoice, and hope in Jesus Christ. Of course, God the Father, like any father, any mother, would rejoice knowing that the messenger has been faithful to Him and to the message and has brought it to others. Our passage this morning is found in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. Or if you're using one of those pew Bibles right there in front of you, it can be found on page 946. The main idea, if you are taking notes, I'm going to repeat this too, so don't feel like you need to uh, write and turn at the same time. The main idea today is God's plan to save requires you to proclaim. God's plan to save requires you to proclaim. And then we're going to break up that sentence and basically the parts of that sentence is going to form the outline today. Point number one, we see God's plan to save. And then point number two requires you to proclaim. Uh, So clearly we are in the book of Romans and we are just walking through the book. A little bit of background. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, had written this letter to Roman Christians. He had not been there, although he knew some Christians who were from that church. He writes this letter to the Roman Christians in the mid-50s, 80, to encourage them in the gospel. And so you to take some time this afternoon and read through the whole entire thing. You'll see that Paul lays out very clearly some aspects of the gospel, very important aspects of the gospel. But he also was wanting to join with the Roman Christians in taking the gospel to Spain, where the gospel had not been preached. And you see that in Romans chapter 15. Today's passage touches on some verses that are very beloved by many, many Christians as they address our need to proclaim the gospel, that same gospel that saved us. 
go ahead and follow along. And, and even though our passage is in 14 to 17, I'll go ahead and start in verse number 1 for context. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Here, by the way, he's talking about ethnic Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the, <clears throat> does the commandments shall live by them. And there, by the way, the, the legalistic Jews were taking that sort of motto and turning it into works righteousness. They were working for their salvation. So here he offers them a corrective. Verse 6. <clears throat> but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see there, point number one. Is that in verses 11 to 13, we're kind, of going to, we're kind of going to back up a little bit. Last week, we addressed some of these things in brief. Now, we're going to return to them, even though uh, you know, our passage mainly is 14 to 17 in some ways. But you see there, point number one, God's plan to save in verses 11 to 13. <clears throat> Go ahead and look there. You see there that God's plan to save is to save all who call on him, all who call on him. And you get this emphasis of language there, this inclusive language. God intends to include lots and lots of different people. He makes no distinction there in verse 12. And you hear this inclusive language, verse 11. Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. Verse number 12, there is no distinction between ethnicities, Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then you have this sort of climax there, verse 13, this is a quotation from the book of Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see how God's plan is very inclusive to save all who call on him. Now, this does not mean that God will save those who do not call on him. Right, you want to see there that he caveats this. It's not just all, period. It's actually all who call on him. Saying that God saves all, period, regardless of whether or not they believe, would actually go against the entire thrust of the book of Romans, doesn't it? Um, but nevertheless, there are still some people who say that God saves all, regardless if they believe. But actually, from our passage today, there's no way that we could conclude that. I mean, that's what we're supposed to conclude from the passage there, all who call on him. 
But you might, re- might respond and say, well, it doesn't say that he will not do those things, right? It doesn't say he won't save all. But here, you just look at the context, right? The Jews, for example, did not believe. And he, that's what he's addressing in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. In fact, Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, too. The Jews did not believe in Christ, and so they were condemned. That's why Paul prays that they would be saved. So you can't say that God saves those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you might say, oh, well, you know, they rejected Jesus, right? They rejected Christ, the fulfillment of the law. Maybe God saves the ignorant apart from Jesus Christ or apart from the gospel. You know, I understand that desire to want to say that. But, you know, we got to submit even our feelings to the word of God and see, well, what does the word of God have to say about the situation? Well, there, friends, we can just go back to Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And he says that even the ignorant are not ignorant. Even they, in their consciences, have disobeyed God. They too, it says there in Romans chapter 1, have exchanged the glory of God for the supposed glory of the stuff of the world, and they have worshipped the creation instead of the Creator. And so they stand before God guilty, condemned. We all, in fact, stand condemned before God because of our own sin. And so those who want to claim ignorance. Well, actually, they are not ignorant. Listen to Jesus' words here. He's very clear about the subject. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is actually the entire reason why Paul wants to take the gospel to Spain, right? Why we all should be wanting to take the gospel to our neighbors. It's so that people would be saved and that they would hear about this great news that the king is pardoning those who have rebelled against him, if they repent and believe. But the qualifications are clear. It is indeed all, but all who call. It is all, all who call. Verse 13, look there. It puts it a different way. It says that the saved are all who call on his name. That phrase there, call on his name, actually fills out so much of what it looks like to believe as a Christian and to have faith as a Christian. I remember one time needing to be saved. Have you guys ever needed to be saved, like really needed to be saved? It was the old, my house almost burned down scenario. Um, And so what was happening is, you know, my mom was making her special seasoned onion oil. I don't expect you to know any, any of what that means. But the way that she would make it is that she would cook onions in oil, basically boiling oil. And that would flavor the oil that we would then use to enjoy on whatever we wanted to. Anyway, so I come home from school, you know, as usual, say hi to my mom, grab my stack, go upstairs, and uh, turn on some music and just relax. And just as I was going about my regular routine, so my mom was, you know, when I come home from school, then she goes out and picks up my little sister. So uh, anyways, I go upstairs. And well, as I was sitting there with the door closed, listening to my music quite loudly, Eating my snack, I start hearing this faint buzzing sound, this faint little buzzing noise. And I thought, oh, it must be background noise, you know, because back then they might uh, issue, you know, let's say tsunami, tsunami warnings, and you might hear this annoying little buzz. I thought, okay, maybe something's messed up. I'm just hearing this little annoying background buzz on the radio. But after a consistent, like, 30 seconds of this buzzing, I finally realized that this is the fire alarm going off. Right now. So I open the door and there's a layer of smoke from the ceiling, right, on the second floor. 
That's how much smoke had already gone upstairs. I mean, thank God the, the house was not on fire, so I go downstairs. And, uh, you know, I had grown up wanting to be a fireman and police officer, so I actually go and check out the fire. And I go towards where all the smoke is coming. And then so I'm looking at the kitchen, and the kitchen is in flames. The cabinets are in flames. There's a layer of at least three or four feet of smoke coming down from the ceiling, and you just can't see. So I'm basically doing a bear crawl to see what's going on. That's how much smoke there was. Smoke everywhere going out of the windows, and uh, I just took off. I ran out of my front door and into another front door that just so happened to be open of my neighbor's. I rushed in and said, I need you to call the fire department. And thank God eventually they came. It was actually quite quick. They put out the fire. There wasn't too much damage. Insurance covered tons of it, I assume. You can ask my dad for the details on that. Thank God no one was injured, especially me, because my room was right above the kitchen. Everyone was safe. My point is that if you know you really, you desperately need saving from the flames that are about to consume you, there ain't no casual calling on the fire department. Eh, the fire department, yeah, maybe I need them, maybe I don't need them, maybe I will call them, maybe I won't call them. No, it's serious. You desperately need saving, and they can save you. And thank God, at least here where we live in general, you can call on them, right? You call on your deliverers. They possess the knowledge. They possess the right tools. They possess the ability. They possess the strength. And they've already, they are ready to give their lives to saving you. You see how much is wrapped up in this little phrase there, in this example at least, calling on the fire department. There's so much actually there when you call upon the fire department. Well, friends, so it is with calling on the name of the Lord. There is so much wrapped up in calling on the name. You go over to Romans chapter 1. Go ahead and look there. And you look at the way that Paul opens up his book here. And there's a reason why he's opening up this book, and we can learn from it. If you want to, you can go back and listen to the sermon too. In Romans chapter 1, it begins there saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. We're going to look at this a little bit later. I'll just go quickly here. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the name of the Lord that we all can call on. That is Jesus, Yahweh saves That is, Jesus Christ, Yahweh, saves through the sending of the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Chosen One. That is what Christ means. That is, Chosen One, the Messiah. He comes to deliver His people. And then He is, further than that, Lord. That He possesses all authority in heaven and on earth and wields that authority and sovereignty to save sinners. Calling upon His name is nothing less than that. There's no casual calling upon his name here in this Christian faith, in this Christian belief, this trust, this leaning upon, this relying upon. It implies that all who call recognize his identity, right? His authority, his character, his ability, his power. They recognize their need to be saved by him and reconciled to him. Faith and belief is not mere intellectual assent. There's no casual calling upon his name here. There is no casually identifying yourself with Christ. 
like we might identify ourselves with a, a sports team. True biblical faith in Christ includes embracing who Christ is and what he has done as Savior and also submitting to him as Lord. That is by definition who he is. I mean, what's interesting is that faith in Romans is also called there the obedience of faith. If you're still in Romans chapter 1, you can go ahead and look there. Look at verse 5. It says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That is Christ's name, the Lord. And then he says the same thing in Romans chapter 16. He ends the book talking about this obedience of faith. And then you look there in Romans 10, verse 16. Turn back over to Romans 10, verse 16. He says there, but they, that is the Jews who have rejected Jesus, but they have not obeyed the gospel. Interesting there that the words about Christ are to be obeyed just as faith is an act of obedience which God gives us. So to recap there, God saves all, but all who call upon his name. just want to be clear there. As we apply this here, thank God that whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Greek, whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian, whether you are rich or poor, whether you go to school or don't go to school, all who call upon his name will in fact be saved. This was indeed God's plan from the first book of the Bible in Genesis where God drew near to Abraham. If you remember there, the promises that God gave Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a father to many nations. And God knew that he knew what he promised. And then as the Old Testament unfolds, we see that the day will come when the nations will stream towards the throne of the king. And we see so clearly in, Gen- in Galatians, for example, that Christ is the seed of Abraham that is a blessing to the nations. And then in Romans chapter 9 to 11, they are all about God's multinational, multi-ethnic people coming together and how God himself has made that possible. And he has fulfilled this in Jesus Christ. So thank God that he makes no distinction. Whether you are a man or a woman, salvation goes to all, just as all have sinned, so all can be saved if they would repent of their sins and believe. And so I think as we look across the pew here, we see that we are a fairly multi-ethnic, multi-national in some ways uh, congregation. This here reflects actually God's divine plan. That the gospel has, in fact, expanded in many ways to the ends of the earth, and he is even now bringing us together, making us a new man, reconciling us to one another, most importantly, of course, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank God, too, that God makes no distinction between the socially moral and the immoral. Right? I mean, he saved some of you who were very proud, self-righteous, thinking that you could do so much and do so much good, and therefore, maybe at one time, thought that you could earn salvation. But he also saves those of you who feel like you are so bad that you can never earn salvation in the first place. And you think, and I've had friends who've said this, God would never save me. I've done too much bad. Both ideas are actually based in this self-righteous, I work for my salvation. But thank God, God makes no salvation. He rebukes the pride and lifts up those who feel so shamed. And we are all, their eyes are directed, therefore, to Christ who has finished salvation he saves all who call upon the name of the lord so if that's you if you feel like you are beyond god's grace and salvation friends just remember that there are those who were so sinfully like satan proud in their self-righteousness 
If you look across the pew, there are probably also some here who have done some very horrendous things and who still, even in some ways, are haunted by their actions in the past. Friends, God saves sinners. Praise the Lord. He makes no distinction as it says there in our verses. Thank God God designed it so that man is not saved by works. Because before God, we can never earn our righteousness. There is not enough righteousness ever before God. In fact, when man stands before God, Romans says that there is none righteous, no, not one. He says that all have sinned against their creator, God, by doing what they wanted instead of what God wanted. And we now earn for ourselves judgment. So friends, whether you are Jew or Gentile or moral or immoral, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a beautiful promise. God makes no distinction. All who call will be saved. You think about this no distinction thing, right? You think about how God displayed the fact that there is no distinction. Just think about Christ on the cross. He is crucified publicly before both the self-righteous and pagan sinners, both the Jewish sinners and pagan sinners, for all to see. He, he, he displays himself as having come near in Jesus Christ to all types of unrighteous people, whether they be socially moral or immoral, whether they be Jew or Gentile. I mean, just imagine how exciting it would have been <clears throat> For sinners who know of their need to be saved. How exciting it would have been, regardless of their background, to see Christ crucified for them. They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, and they turn to God for forgiveness of sins. The righteousness I need, God brings near. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Go ahead and look there. Right? We don't need to do the impossible to get righteousness as if we work for it, and then we bring righteousness down. Bring it down from heaven. We don't need to do the unattainable, the unimaginable, to go across the sea into the abyss to bring Christ up that is righteousness that is so far away from us. No, it's unimaginable, unattainable. God has already done it. He has brought Christ down. He has brought Christ up. He revealed His righteousness in the nearness of His Son. God made His righteousness so plain to sinners, so available, so accessible to everyone as Christ hung on the cross, and then as he was raised from the dead. As we apply this here, this should lead us to praise. This is a reason to rejoice, not just in the fact that the righteousness we need is available. Because if you're self-righteous, you might just think, yeah, great, it's available, and then that just fuels your own idolatry. The key here is that God has done it. God himself has done it. Romans 1, 16 70. Go ahead and turn back there. These are kind of like the theme verses of the book here. Emphasizing that the fact that God has done it, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So when we call upon the name of God, We call upon him knowing that we need him to save us. God has done it. Though we were created by him and for him, though we had sinned against him, earning our just punishment, God had a plan to save us. Though we could never earn God's righteousness, we could never climb up to him, the ladder of self-righteousness, God brought Christ near. 
And in doing so, he sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh to save those who could not save themselves. Though we had broken his law and gone against him as the lawgiver, Christ is the one who lived the righteous life for us, fulfilling the demands of the law. Though we should have paid for our sins in death and judgment, Christ bears the wrath we deserved as our substitute. Though we could never defeat sin and death, Christ Jesus is the one who got up from the dead. And now all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, cleansed of our unrighteousness, forgiven of our sins, adopted into his family, where we stand justified before God the righteous judge. Given all that God has done, all we have to do, all that he commands us to do is to call upon his name. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, friends, this invitation here is clear. It's come to him. Call upon him and you will be saved. It is, friends, that simple. For us, for our salvation, Christ came. You know, with all of this news about Christ doing what we could not, we would think, right? Look, great, let's celebrate, let's praise, let's rejoice. Everything's done. It is finished. Christ is one and done. And therefore, we don't have to do anything. But friends, that's entirely incorrect. Entirely incorrect. God's plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth requires us, his people, to go out with the message. It requires us to proclaim. This is point number two. God's plan to save, here's point number two, requires you to proclaim. You have to do something. By God's design, we need to proclaim. And in proclaiming the word of Christ, it is as if we bring him near again. That's really important there, in, underneath this point here. In proclaiming the word of Christ, it is as if we bring him near again. And we can even get rid of the as if. In proclaiming the word of Christ, we bring the benefits of Christ near to those who repent and believe. That's how certain he is here. In proclaiming Christ, it is as if we are enfleshing Christ for the hearer to lay hold of in faith. Right, we use that word in flesh. Oh, flesh that out a little bit more. In flesh that out a little bit more. In bringing Christ near, we in flesh Christ for all to lay hold of by faith. All by God's design. His ongoing plan of salvation moves forward in our proclamation of Jesus Christ. And friends, this has huge implications for your evangelism. For our evangelism. So you might be wondering, okay, that's a little confusing. I understand that Christ was brought near bodily, right, 2,000 years ago. I get that. Salvation is accomplished in that thing 2,000 years ago. The benefits of salvation have been brought near in that thing accomplished 2,000 years ago. It is secured. It is accessible. Christ is brought near, yes. But in our proclaiming? Oftentimes in our evangelism, we tend to think, you know, evangelism is as dry or impotent as holding out an event that happened 2,000 years ago, like we're some boring encyclopedia that has no power. But here he says the entire opposite. Romans chapter 1 says the exact opposite. It is the gospel in it is the power of God and salvation for all those who believe. In it is the power. He's talking about very clearly a message there. By God's design is people's words about Christ makes righteousness by faith near. Therefore, there is inherent power in Christian proclamation. 
both in the preached, certainly in the preached word, but also in your evangelism, in your sharing of the gospel truths. God works it unto salvation according to his grace and sovereign plan. Right? We know that the word brings life. We know that the word accomplishes what God intends it to. We know that the word sanctifies. And friends, Romans chapter 10, verses 6 to 8 say the exact same thing. If you just look there, I'll just go ahead and summarize it again. Uh, he says, Paul says there that the, this righteousness by faith, this salvation in Jesus Christ by faith, he says that is near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart, but did you see how it is near you? He doesn't say, oh, 20 years after Jesus died, Christ still stands here physically. He says, no, how is it near you? He says salvation in Christ is near, not just in the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection, but in this word of faith that we proclaim. Salvation in Jesus Christ is brought near in the very words that we proclaim. This word of faith is a word of Christ that calls for faith. You see how interesting that is? He says that that even though Jesus died 20 years ago, two decades have passed, but yet he says it is as if salvation in Christ is just as clear, just as real, just as tangible. The benefits are just as near, just as present. Just as Christ said then, 2,000 years ago, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest for your souls. So he says now in our preached word, God himself says you will have rest for your souls. Just as Christ came preaching the kingdom of God has arrived, repent and believe. So in our relaying of that news, the king still speaks loudly just as clear, just as real, just as near. In proclaiming Christ, it is as if we are enfleshing Christ for all to lay hold of in faith. Now, let's be clear. In me saying this, in Paul saying this, he is not downplaying the actual person and work of Christ, but he is, in fact, uprising, uplifting the importance of Christian proclamation in Jesus. Again, Romans chapter 1, where is the power of God unto salvation? It is in the message of God that has a certain content. It's fascinating here. Jesus doesn't need to be here. In fact, we know that it was his plan to leave, but yet he says, there's still power in the message about me. So in our evangelism, there is power in the message because in it, by God's design, the Savior still calls. It's not like us presenting dry facts like we're an encyclopedia, but no, the Savior himself still calls in our relaying of the message. When Christ's messengers give Christ's message, Christ still speaks. There's power in the message. Friends, as we apply this, where do you think the power of God lies? Think about your own evangelism. Where do you think the power of God lies, Christian? Does the power of God unto salvation lie in the intellect? In other words, like, do you turn up and think, oh, I don't have degrees, I don't have enough knowledge, therefore I can't evangelize, there's not any power, no one's going to believe me. That's not what God says. Or, or does the power of God lie in your ability to answer objections? So apologetics. Or does the power of God lie in your likability? You know, you just got to be a good friend, and if you're friendly enough, then people will call on the name of Jesus. Or maybe if, you know, Jesus were present, then your message about him might have more power so that people could see with their eyes, then there would be power in the message. No, he doesn't say that. The power is in the message. 
First, because of who the message is about, and then second, because of who charged us to proclaim that message in the first place. Right? Because of who the message is about, and second, because of who charged us to proclaim the message in the first place. The Lord of the universe has given us a message about what he himself has done and he has made that available to all who call on him. So what does that mean for us? We therefore need to be faithful to him and faithful to the message. Given who sent us and given who we are to proclaim, why would we lose any confidence? Thinking back to the intro, right, about the little kid, dad, mom says, imagine being told by your parents to call your brothers and sisters in for dinner and it's their favorite meal. Or, or imagine being told that, that, you know, that we're going to Disneyland. Right, so let's say me and Mel told Owen, our youngest child, only just turned six years old, to go outside and bring them, your brother and sisters, this message, tell your brother and sisters to stop what they are doing and to come in for their, for their favorite meal or to go to Disneyland or to do whatever. And say, don't forget, say, mom and dad says. Little kids get it. Little kids will walk out, three-year-old kid will walk out to their kid who might be in four, 14 years old and be like, mom and dad says, no, you got to do this, mom and dad says. Owen doesn't say, oh, but Jeremiah, he's in junior high school, he's so much smarter than me, he has more degrees than me, and I am only in first grade, right? It's not in the intellect, it's not in the degrees, nor is Owen's, or nor is the power, nor does the power lie in Owen's ability to answer all the objections. If Maya or Ellie or Bethan were to say, oh, but why did mom choose to make falafels and not Hawaiian chicken? Right? Owen can stand there and say, I don't know. Mom and dad says. <laughs> the power is not in Owen's ability to answer the questions. And it is not even dependent on Owen's likability. Now, you guys know this. If you've had siblings and your siblings don't particularly like you in that moment and mom and dad tells you to say something, you go out and who cares? Mom and dad says. The power is dependent on who is really speaking and the fact that the message is stinking true. All one, therefore, needs to do is be faithful to the one who sent him or her, and then number two, be faithful to the message. Christian, our Savior has ascended into his house, that is heaven. He has spread his feasts of salvation, and he has charged us as his people and his messengers to go to call out to the ends of the earth, come, eat and drink, and you will be filled and forgiven of your sins, justified before a righteous God, adopted into his family. All you need to do, Christian, is be faithful to him and faithful to the message. This is what Paul aimed for, right, in Romans chapter 1. We just read there, he is apostle of God with this message from God. It is about Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, sent to bring about the obedience of faith. And so that's all he does. He's going to go to Spain with the gospel news. doesn't matter what other people think. He's going on behalf of the Lord's authority with the Lord's message, and therefore he can trust. You can think about the apostles as well. As well. Luke 24, 46, it says, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer, that is, suffer for sins, on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to the nations. He says, you are witnesses of these things. They are charged by the Lord of the universe to testify to his life, his death, his resurrection. And so for all those who hear and believe the word, the righteousness that is by faith, the righteousness of God in Christ is brought near. This is why Paul uplifts Christian proclamation there. Now we get to Romans 14, 
or 10, 14. Actually, start there in 13. You see his logic there. Wonderful promise. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he kind of just lays out this logic plainly. Well, okay, well, how is it that someone is to call on the name of the Lord if they don't believe? And then he goes backwards even further. How are they to believe if they've never heard? And how are they to hear if no one ever preaches to them, proclaims to them? And how are the proclaimers to go if they are never sent out by others, right? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There, that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, just affirming the fact that those who bring the good news are part of God's plan, and it is a wonderful thing to see God's plan go out. The summary there is verse 17. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. For those who hear his message and believe, for them that righteousness by faith is near, near in the word of Christ that they have embraced by faith. You see how much is at stake in your Christian proclamation? It's the fulfillment of God's plan to save sinners by His grace through faith in Christ. God's plan to save requires you to proclaim. All right, so in all of this, let's not miss what is needed, what is required for people to be saved. We're still underneath point one. We're looking at needs here. We see first the need to proclaim the word. Practical application here. First, the need to proclaim the word. Verse 17, once again, it's not just any word, but it's the word of Christ. It's the word of faith that is the word of Christ that requires faith, that calls for faith. And in order to proclaim the word, what's another need here? We need to know the basic content of the word of Christ. So if you are exploring Christianity, it's important for me to point out that this word of Christ is not ultimately about how becoming a Christian changes people's lives. Although it does, it certainly did mine. It certainly did that in a whole lot of different ways. The word of Christ centers around Christ's perfect life, his sacrificial death for sin, and his resurrection for our own righteousness and justification. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans 4.25. You can look there if you want. Christ Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That's why he died for our sin. And he was raised for our justification. That is, in his being raised from the dead, in his not staying dead, he shows all that payment has already been made. Payment has already been accepted, and so we are just. Romans chapter 3, regarding why he was delivered up, it says there that he was the one whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. He's a sacrifice for sinners. And then Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says there that you will be saved. So it's obvious this this word of Christ here centers on his life, his death, and resurrection. As we apply all of this, my encouragement to us is to know the gospel. You've got to know the gospel if you are going to proclaim the word of Christ, right? And something we do regularly here. Um, is to encourage everyone to know a basic summary of the gospel and be able to share the gospel in like 60 seconds or less. That way you can share the gospel on the way to school or like on the way to class, walking with friends. Or you can share the gospel with another person standing in line waiting for coffee at Starbucks. 
Right, so an effort for we all, an effort for you all to know how to share the gospel. Here's a structure that I'm going to give to you guys. Again, we do this regularly. Many of you guys have probably already heard it. If you haven't heard it, write this down, this structure. God, man, Christ, response. If you've never heard that before, or even if you need a refresher, write that down. God, man, Christ, response. And it's on those four sort of plot points or subjects or structures that you can remember the gospel. You think about God. Well, okay, who's God? God made everything. God made you and me. He made you and me to be in a relationship with him. Boom, done, right? We are underneath this God. And then we go to man, right? Oh, but here we got the problem. We got man rebelled against this wonderful and loving God. It's not perfect anymore, right? We've rebelled against him. Instead of doing what he wanted us to do, we did what we want to do, and that's called sin, the Bible says. And for that, we now stand under condemnation. Even condemnation in hell, the Bible says, one day in hell, according to God's just justice. Okay, so there you got man. That's the problem. Then we've got a solution. We've got Christ. So we've gone through God. We've gone through man. Now we get to Christ where we created a problem. God presents the solution. Praise the Lord. He doesn't want sinners to die. So he sends Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we should have, die the death that we should have, bearing the wrath that we deserved. Three days later, he gets up from the dead showing payment has been made. And in that, now we are all called to call on him. We have a response. We can either go our own way, choose to continue to live in sin, or we can embrace Christ, the Lord and Savior. Call out to him, Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the Bible says you will be saved. Now, of course, I'm not saying you've got to share the truths of the gospel like that every single time. Uh, you know, I strongly recommend you to be able to, though, at different points in times of the relationship, you know, someone might want a certain piece of information about how, does Christians, how do Christians think about this particular thing. You can have long conversations about that. That's good. But I strongly recommend that you be able to share the gospel in 60 seconds or less. Because I don't know about you, but I actually have gotten into conversations with people and needed to share the gospel with others quickly. I think sharing the gospel in this way is incredibly useful because it makes things very clear as to why people need to call on Christ in the first place. Why do people need to call on Christ in the first place? Christians, in your sharing of the gospel, why do your friends think they need to call on the name of the Lord? Just think about what you remember yourself saying in previous conversations, right? Why do your friends think they need to call on the name of the Lord based on what you said? You can talk about all you want to about Christians having great relationships, knowing how to forgive one another. You can talk about how Christian, Christianity holds out you know, a way for better marriages or how Christianity gets me out of addiction, which it did. You can talk about how Christianity makes me more loving, which we all pray that God will do this, or Christianity helps me know how to manage my finances. But having all of those things do, do not, does not get you righteousness with Christ, does it? It doesn't at all. If all you ever talk about were those things, then all anyone would ever call out to the, na to the name of the Lord for is because God is the God of better marriages. God is the God of niceness, making me more loving. God is the God who sets addicts free. But friends, again, you could talk about all that, but God is never Jesus, Yahweh, saves. 
He is never Christ, God's chosen one, come to deliver his people through his substitutionary death on the cross. And that what, friends, that's, friends, what's alluded to in um, verse 16. He quotes there this verse from Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That comes from Isaiah 52, 53, where it talks about Christ dying as a substitute for sinners. Christ, if he, if Lord is only the Lord of better finances, etc., he might not necessarily be actually the Lord in your presentation who possesses absolute authority and who's worthy of all honor, glory, and power. So friends, in what you communicate... You want to help lead people to God who loves sinners in Christ and who is gracious and merciful. Again, I'm not saying it is bad to talk about how God helps Christians get better marriages because he does. It's also good to talk about how Christ helps us with uh, you know, self-discipline in regards to finances. He does and he will. He will, in fact, make us more loving. He does and he will. But friends... If we are presenting the biblical gospel in its fullness, we will, without a shadow of a doubt, get to Christ's righteous life, his substitutionary death on the cross, as he bore the wrath for sinners, and his resurrection for our justification. As we consider our need to know and proclaim the gospel to those around us, let me encourage you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Lord, who has come to earth, taken on flesh in order to save sinners, and then by God's grace we will see Christ, they will see Christ for who he is as the loving Lord and Savior. Second need, this is the last one, we're wrapping up. Second need here, the church is to send. You see that there in verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent? Or how are they to proclaim unless they are sent? Now Paul may be using this, this very formal language there when he talks about being sent out. He might be thinking there of the apostles particularly, or let's say even Isaiah, as he quotes from Isaiah, right? An official prophet of God. But even if he is using this very formal language, thinking also uh, ultimately about apostles, nevertheless, the church throughout ages still has a mission by God. We know that Jesus promised his church to give his presence to the end of the age in Matthew 28. There he's thinking beyond the apostles. He's thinking about, he's thinking about the entire church. We know, too, that all Christians are given a ministry of reconciliation, according to 1 Corinthians. We know that all Christians are, should be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ, according to 1 Peter 3. So there is, without shadow of a doubt, application for us today. Christians in the worldwide body of Christ, First Baptist Church is part of the worldwide body of Christ, are sent out into our own mission fields, our communities, our workplaces that God has placed us in, in order that we might proclaim the gospel. These are your families. These are your communities. These are your workplaces. These are the places where you do your hobbies. These are the businesses that you frequent. These are your primary mission fields. So I pray that you would embrace this charge given by God himself. I've been super encouraged to see that many people do, in fact, embrace this mission. And so if you turn up tonight, just like uh, every other first Sunday of the month, we're going to gather together for a time of prayer. We're going to hear about uh, different announcements, more babies coming, in fact. Uh, but we'll also hear about evangelism. So we're going to be praying for people who are having gospel conversations with others. And just think back to the other things that you've heard about. Right? I, I'm super encouraged. I have not uh, told anyone that I was going to use them as examples, but here we go. 
I've been encouraged by Charlotte in using her opportunities to teach others about Jesus, little kids and Jesus in Compton. Super encouraging. I've been encouraged by Jen and David. David is one of our elders trying to have gospel conversations with some of their friends that uh, Jen met at the library. I've been encouraged by Adrian time and time again as he's been having gospel conversations at the skate park where he does his hobbies. Well, that's where he's going to be a Christian, right? Uh, I've been encouraged by AJ and Roseanne doing the exact same thing in apartment life and even at work and outside of work. Even this week, I met up with Nicholas and we had a conversation about evangelism. It was awesome to hear how he, the brother, is going about evangelizing others and has a desire to see people saved. And even also this last week, Jay, Jay Figueroa, introduced me to one of his friends over lunch, and there we talked about Christ. Non-Christian friend, and Jay wants him to know Christ. Friends, this is super encouraging. But of course, there's always room to grow. So let me ask you, if you've not shared the gospel, let's say in the last week, or the last month, or the last six months, or let's say you claim to be a Christian, but you have never shared the news about how your Lord and Savior can save all who call just as he has saved you. The question you got to ask is, why aren't you going out with this news? I mean, only the meanest child would say, hear from the parents, we're going to Disneyland and say, I don't care if they rejoice in this. I'm going to go enjoy this myself. But no, it is a loving child that goes out to tell other people the wonderful good news about their heavenly father. So let me encourage you, share the gospel. By the way, you heard those names. If you've not shared the gospel, you want to learn how to share the gospel, just go and ask those people that I mentioned or ask your neighbor. You can think about it together. Talk about it over lunch today. Now, some of you guys might be thinking about going overseas to do missions. This is a, a very unique, like what Paul's doing. He's taking the gospel to Spain, a very different culture for the sake of the gospel, where there it had not been preached. Right, so in your mind, you might be thinking, I want to go to the least reached places of the world and share the gospel there, the, the least reached peoples. This is a great thing to do. And I pray that we as a church one day have an opportunity to send many people out from this congregation. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if like 10 of you guys were like, you know what? I, I, I think it's really good. There's this place over here. It's a least reached nation. Let's just say in somewhere in Central Asia, they're in need of a church. And we elders are thinking about the same exact thing. And then the elders and the congregation can say, okay, let's send 10 of you guys over there to go plant a church and hopefully establish other gospel preaching churches there in that area. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that one day? Friends, if you are thinking about this overseas missions to the least reach peoples, uh, let me encourage you, definitely talk to the elders. Talk to your friends about these things. You definitely do not want to go about this with a lone ranger aspect, a lone ranger mindset. You want to talk to your friends and ask them, you know, if you're thinking about the traditional missions, right, going out and sharing the gospel, actually and planting churches. I know one can do missions in a whole different way, like, uh, let's say, translation, and maybe you're in another country, and there that country has other churches, healthy ones that you can be a part of, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, you know, frontier missions where you're sharing the gospel with reach, least reached peoples and trying to plant churches. You want to talk to other people and, and say, like, hey, am I known to evangelize my neighbors? Can you help me with that? You want to be known for doing the things that God is, that you think God is calling you to do in the future. You want to be known for doing that right now, right here in your primary mission fields, right? Because chances are, if you're not doing it here, you're not going to be known for doing it there. And actually, you might be a detriment to the church that you want to plant and actually to yourself 
And I can testify, having pastored missionaries in the 1040 window, and Jason having doing, done the same, that not all missionaries really get it. They want to evangelize others, but they may, may not be knowing the gospel message well. Or they might not even really care about the church that Jesus Christ loves. So let me encourage you, definitely talk to your friends, talk to your pastors, and Lord willing, we can think through these types of things. Praise God, in relation to partnering, we actually partner right now with a, a group that supports international missions. It's called the International Mission Board. And there, this is the International Missions Wing of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and they send out missionaries. So little churches like us can partner with them to send out missionaries. So if one of you guys desires to go, and if the church thinks it's wise, the elders think it's wise, your family thinks it's wise, everybody around you is like, yeah, definitely, it's a good opportunity. Um, you could go through them and go fully funded. So if you're thinking about that, that might be like one or two of you. If you're thinking about that, that actually should be an option. You go fully funded. That way, if you're out on a mission field, you don't have to think about, in the back of your mind, having to go back home and to raise funds. You could just go with them, and we can join with you in sending you. We are to be sending others out, both in sort of the formal cross-cultural sense, but then also here, of course. So definitely, let me encourage you, if you are thinking about this, talk to the elders, and uh, we can figure out how to best shepherd you and encourage you in that direction. In terms of other things that we've done here, we've supported missionaries that have come through um, to preach for us. If you remember one brother, he came and preached a number of sermons for us. He now is in an Islamic country uh, with a team planting churches. Right? We supported him. Um, thank God we did. Currently, we give financially to Covenant Hope Church Dubai. This was the last church that Jason and Bev were at prior to coming back here. So the last church that Jason was serving at. Um, but as we mature as a church... Let me encourage you guys to be praying for our church to know what opportunities to get involved in. There are plenty of opportunities, but not all, we think, are the right opportunities for us. I've definitely had conversations with pastors around the world. Even Thursday and Friday, I was talking with one pastor in Almaty, Kazakhstan, in an Islamic country. Um, and we were trying to, I was trying to help him pastorally, trying to help his church. I've had conversations with different organizations, and Oscar and I were trying to get in contact with an organization that does work in Mexico. And to some degree, I was going back and forth with them, trying to figure out, is that the best situation? they got a seminary down there, but they don't have a church, so we really want to be church-based. Um, not always. I was talking to uh, this other organization that John Piper Bethlehem Baptist Church is affiliated with, and they go and teach pastors of seminaries. That's awesome. Uh, and the one that they had was in Africa, but, you know, for various reasons, that was the, I didn't think that that would be the wisest thing to get into at that particular time. And there's also a bunch of different short-term things that we could do. But anyways, just pray for us as we continue to think about this. We are a young church, and that's okay. We're not in sin, right, if we don't do overseas missions. You know why? Because there's tons of people all around us who have never heard of the name of Jesus ever. Those folks we want to be evangelizing. God has already placed us here in this place. And so it is imperative that we never forget that there are, in fact, least rich peoples here in Los Angeles, people who have never heard of salvation in Jesus Christ before. This is one of the main reasons why I wanted to see this church revitalized in Hacienda Heights. It's so that from this church, a group of Christians, that is us, the members of First Baptist Church, would be in a position to go with the gospel by the command of God to the mission field that we have all around us. 
into our communities with the good news that God loves sinners in Jesus Christ and that he saves by grace through faith. To conclude here, we have all been charged by Christ to bring his message of salvation to those around us. By God's design, his plan from eternity past, his plan to save requires us to proclaim There is purpose and power in the message because as his messengers speak his message, so our loving Lord speaks. The question, of course, is are you faithful to the Lord and his message? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what great kindness you have given us in Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down, suffered at the hands of sinners, was mocked, crucified, but then who also was raised, who has ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority. Lord, how awesome is it that in your plan you have called your children to go out to the ends of the earth with the most wonderful news for man. And we can rejoice in seeing people embrace this wonderful news, to rejoice knowing that they now know the Father in heaven who has loved them in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful. We pray that you would make us bold and confident. We pray that the Spirit would fill us so that we would be confident and bold to speak of you. Lord, we ask where we are not. We pray that where we are sheepish, where we would rather keep the peace instead of longing for eternal peace with God, Lord, we pray that you would rebuke us. God, we ask that we would have absolute confidence in the fact that you are our God and that your word will accomplish everything that you determine it to. So, Lord, unstop our mouths so that we might speak the gospel truths to our neighbors. Help us be faithful to the message. And Lord, we ask that in all things your name would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.